Now let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we want to thank you that we have this opportunity to come together on this beautiful Lord's Day to celebrate your resurrection from the dead. We ask that you would send your Holy Spirit into our midst, that we would have the awareness of your favor and your presence with us. We ask that you would instruct us, that you would nourish us, that you would challenge us, that you would grow us. Father, speak to us now, and we will give you our attention in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Well, after conferring with my legal counsel and as part of my plea deal from last week, I've been asked to issue a public apology to any lawyers who may be present in our <laughs> fellowship here and uh, any implication that I may have been challenging their veracity. I was also, as part of my plea deal, I was asked to inform you that the problem with our judiciary system is not actually with dishonest lawyers. It is, however, with the judges. <laughs> All right, so we're, we're good now, right? <laughs> actually, I did catch a lot of flack this week for uh, pounding on lawyers last week. Um, it, it's all tongue-in-cheek. In case you didn't know, I'm sparring with uh, Bill, who's our uh, tri former trial lawyer, and who was asked if he would have a moment to give a rebuttal. <laughs> <laughs> At any rate, since we have no judges in the congregation, we'll pick on them today. Um, it's it's uh, no secret that there is such a thing as dishonest judges or unjust judges. Uh, Jesus gave the parable about the unjust judge in Luke chapter 18. In our own time, we have quite a history of dishonest or unjust judges. One such judge was named Mr. Zero Tolerance, Judge Mark Ciavarella. He was a big supporter of harsh sentences for children. Um, he would sentence uh, kids for an, un an unusual length of time in the Luzerne County Correction Center. He sent one 11-year-old juvenile to the detention center for two years because he took his mom's car for a joyride down the block. Um, he sent a 15-year-old to this detention center because she had mocked her assistant principal on MySpace. He gave a 17-year-old five months for helping to steal some DVDs. Um, he makes our list of bad judges not because he sent these kids to juvenile detention, but because he was getting kickbacks from the detention center for sending the kids there. Over uh, a time, he had gotten somewhere in the neighborhood of a million dollars, wait, a million dollars as kickbacks from this detention center. Um, the court wised up to him and sentenced him to 27 years in prison. Thomas J. Mahoney, perhaps the worst judge in history, Thomas J. Mahoney was a judge in Cook County, Illinois from 1977 to 1991. Um, he was the object of an investigation called Operation Greylord, which was a joint investigation by the FBI, the IRS, the Illinois State Patrol, and the United, Parcel, United USPS, US Postal System. Um, about corrupt judges. It turns out Mahoney had a way of dismissing high-profile murder cases. And a lot of these mafia murder guys were, were running free, um, turns out because he was getting bribes in the neighborhood of $100,000 for each uh, instance that he let these mafia murderers and gangsters walk free. I mean, as long as he got his fee, they could walk out. So he's judged as one of the worst 
as the worst judge in history. Another example is Judge John Murphy of Brevard County, Florida. He made the headlines in 2014. He started challenging the public defender to a fist fight. He, uh, the public defender, Andrew Weinstock, um, as part of his normal course of representing his client, refused to waive the right of trial. And so the judge got really nasty with him and said, you know, if I had a rock, I'd throw it at you right now. When Weinstein ref Weinstock refused to sit down, Judge Murphy said, if you want to go out and fight, we'll step out back and I'll kick your bottom, at which time they did. They stepped out. There's no, they, there's no video recording of what happened because it was outside of the courtroom, but you could clearly hear through the video of the fist fight and the judge pounding on Weinstock's face. Now, issues of judicial and uh, misconduct really break down the very fiber of what's necessary for the function of the judicial system. The citizens need to believe that their judges are fair and impartial. In fact, a judiciary cannot exist without the trust and confidence of the people. Judges, therefore, have to be held accountable legally when they misbehave. So we have ethical standards, we have um, investigations that the judicial system ought to practice and force upon judges when there are complaints of ethical misconduct, especially in cases of the improper demeanor, failure to disqualify oneself when they have a conflict of interest, judges engaging in ex parte uh, communication, or a failure to uh, execute their judicial duties in a timely manner. So. Uh, to be honest, it's really a minority of judges who are the ethical problems, but um, these judges ought to be held accountable so that people have confidence in the system. Uh, the former president of the United States, Theodore Roosevelt, said, no man is above the law, no man is below the law, nor do we ask any man's permission when we ask him to obey it. Obedience to the law is demanded as a right, not asked as a favor. The judges who administer justice in our country must be seen as ethical <coughs> and subject to meaningful correction when it's necessary. Nothing less than the rule of law is at stake. Of course, last week I was talking to you about court television and how it's really not true court because they're not real judges. They're just simply arbiters staged in uh, sets pretending to be judges. And if these guys had been real judges, they would have been subject to um, the laws that would pertain to judges about correct behavior in a court of law. And the reality is they're just, they're acting as arbitrators because the two people involved have signed away their legal rights and, and agreed to submit to whatever the arbitrator, who's posing as a judge, um, tells them they're, they're gonna do. And I mentioned uh, last week also that detractors of those reality uh, courtroom TV shows point out that these are very unrepresentative of what real world judging is all about, that these judges are far more uncivil, abusive, condescending, antagonistic, and if they behaved like that in a real court of law, they would be subject to um, judgment themselves for conduct unbecoming a judge. So these courtroom TVs typically act in a way that's, that's uh, not real. They're, they argue with the people, they interrupt them, and they often do so quite rudely. Now, we have already seen in our study of Paul's life several 
pretty outstanding examples of judicial misconduct by judges, and we've seen that in just the several trials that we've most recently looked at in Paul's life. For instance, he's on trial before the Sanhedrin, the highest court of Israel, the, 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 the Supreme Court of Israel, and they have already come to their verdict even before charges have been filed. They're determined that they want to kill him, and in fact, they would have if the Romans hadn't intervened. Then last week, we talked about his trial before Felix. This began as a formal inquiry just to find out if there were actual serious charges to be filed. And we're told that Felix knew that Paul was innocent, um, but uh, he still didn't act upon it. He, he invoked a Roman principle which is known as amplius. That's just where you postpone making your formal judgment. So there's no conviction, but Felix is wanting to brown-nose the Jews, who he's also abusing on the other hand, um, to, to act at doing a favor for them. And so he delays, for the rest of his time in, in Israel as the, as the governor there, he delays making any judgment at all, and he keeps Paul in prison. So Paul is, is denied justice, and justice delayed is justice denied. So Paul is kept under arrest just as a matter of political expediency. He's a, he's a Roman magistrate, and he, and he knows Paul's innocent, but he wants to uh, do the Jews a favor, keeping some semblance of peace among the people, because he's not judging by what is right, he's judging by what is expedient. And that, by the way, was no different from the trial of Jesus. Remember, Pilate is the Roman procurator at that time, and Pilate also publicly says, I find no fault in this man. But then Pilate tries to dismiss his personal responsibility with the ceremonial washing of his hands to say that he is innocent of condemning this man. Well, he's, he's not innocent at all. He's compromised for political reasons um, in order to mollify the crowd. You know, on those occasions, Lady Justice takes down her blindfold to see which way the wind is blowing before she makes a, a verdict. I guess we shouldn't be too hard on Pontius Pilate or on, on Felix, because that actually is the way judges and rulers have always ruled. Rulers always keep an eye on public opinion, and when they're torn between justice and expediency, it's very rare that a ruler will keep his eye on justice. Now, we have before us today a change of venue, then two requests for a change of venue, followed by a judicial appeal which mandates a change of venue all the way to a seat before the Roman emperor. And the judge who's providing, presiding over the, the hearing that we're looking at today is now Festus, not to be confused with Felix, who we were talking about last week. So we ended last week with Felix keeps Paul in in custody for two years until Felix is recalled back to Rome, unfavorably recalled back to Rome, and Paul is just left uh, in custody during, during that time. Now Festus comes to replace Felix, and Festus too, acting as a judge, is more of a politician. He wants to see uh, what way 
public opinion is, is blowing. And so he's not an impartial and a fair judge. We learn right away that Festus wants to do the Jews a favor. That's something you never want to hear from a judge, that they want to do one party a favor. Uh, but that's where we start in, in our reading today from Acts chapter 25, verse 1. If you'll turn with me to Acts 25, 1. Now, before we get started in this text, let's briefly review how Paul got to this point in the, st in the story. So at the urging of his friends to not go to Jerusalem and the, the revelation from the Holy Spirit that if he goes, that he's, he's going to um, face imprisonment and persecution, Paul goes because he's sure that that's what the Lord wants him to do. Once he gets there to Jerusalem, he meets with James who is the, uh, kind of the president of the church, the, the head elder of the church in Jerusalem, and some of the other elders, who are very happy to hear that God is at work among the Gentiles, and many of them are getting saved. That's great news. But they also want to deal with this rumor that's been circulating that Paul has been teaching the Jews that live outside of Palestine, the Jews living among the Gentiles, that they shouldn't follow Jewish customs, that they should ignore their Jewish culture. And now, now to or, in order to prove that these rumors are false, they advise Paul to take part in a, a worship tradition at the temple because that will publicly show everyone that Paul does, in fact, practice Judaism. And that's what, that's what, uh, what, what he does. Uh, he's, he gets to the temple. He's practicing this public purification when some Asian Jews, Jews that recognized Paul from Ephesus, um, start a riot. They, they call for help. They accuse Paul of, of uh, desecrating the temple by bringing a Gentile in there. That's not true. He did not do that. And the Jews haul Paul out, and they're about ready to kill him. When the Romans reacting to this riot step in and basically, incidentally, save Paul's life. The Roman commander, um, Claudius Lysias, comes at just at the right time. He's hauling Paul back to the Antonian fortress. And there on the steps between the uh, temple mound and the fortress, Paul asks if, in, in beautiful Greek if he can address the crowd. The commander agrees. He addresses the crowd. He speaks to them in Aramaic, which some of the crowd, those who were local Jews, would understand. But the Jews that have come from other territories wouldn't speak Aramaic. It wasn't the trade language. Greek was. And certainly, the commander does not understand what Paul is saying because he's speaking to the crowd in Aramaic. Paul gives them this address. He basically tells the people that he's responding because God has directed him to go to the Gentiles, to take the, the gospel to the Gentiles because the Jews will not believe. That, of course, starts another riot. The Roman um, commander doesn't know what's going on. Um, he pulls Paul in, but now he's determined to find out the truth. He's going to do it the, the hard way, the old-fashioned way. He's going to beat it out of him. And he was about ready to do that when Paul declares he is a Roman citizen and he's not subject to that kind of abuse. Uh, he still wants to get down to the bottom of what's going on. So the commander, um, Claudius Lysias, summons the Jewish Sanhedrin to you know, investigate, come up with what's the rioting about and why is this guy in the middle of it? Paul's there before the Sanhedrin and he shouts out to a divided group, the Pharisees and the Sadducees within the Sanhedrin, that this whole thing, all of this fluff, all of this 
this rioting is about one thing, that he believes in the resurrection of the dead. Of course, the Pharisees in the Sanhedrin say, hey, there's nothing wrong with this guy. We believe that too. The Sadducees are ready to, to murder him. And once more, a riot breaks out among the Jews. And once more, the commander has to step in to suppress the riot. Uh, that night, we're now in chapter 23, verse 11. Uh, that night, the, the Lord comes, stands beside Paul to encourage him, to tell him to keep up the faith. And as, as he has been faithful to witness in Jerusalem, he will also speak in Rome. Now, that's a great promise. It is a reassurance that he's doing the right thing, and it's a promise that he's going to speak um, in Rome, just as he had in Jerusalem. That's followed by this vigilante group of about 40 guys who make a vow, a promise, that they're not going to eat or drink until they've killed Paul, until they've assassinated him. Um, the plot just happens to be overheard by Paul's nephew, who reports it to Paul, then reports it to the commander. Um, the commander quickly puts together a very impressive bodyguard to escort Paul to Caesarea, to the Roman capital there, and he is delivered over to Felix. Uh, trial is forthcoming, but there are no eyewitnesses, and there are no obvious charges um, with, with uh, credible evidence, and so uh, Felix is frustrated with it all, and then, like I said, he decides to keep Paul in, uh, under arrest for the next two years. Now we come to Festus, Felix's replacement, who wants to take charge and show the Jews that he is a man in command, um, but he wants to do so by first creating a sense of cooperation and peace. Now we're at our text before us today, Acts 25.1. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him asking as a favor against Paul that he should summon him to Jerusalem. That's the re first request for a change of venue. Because they were planning to ambush and kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let him bring charges against him. So Festus is this new governor of Judea, and he is not like Felix. He's not a procrastinator. He jumps in right away. He's, he's in Caesarea no more than a couple days before he heads up to Jerusalem, and he wants to create the sense of cooperation with the Jewish authorities. He understands that if he's going to have peace as a Roman governor, and that's the most important thing to a Roman governor, is that there be peace, he needs the cooperation of these Jewish leaders. So he immediately goes up to Jerusalem um, to try to create this sense of peace. He's, he's kind of been dumped on unfairly because he's inheriting all the problems that his inept predecessor left for him. Uh, Felix's uh, uh, callousness and, and cruelty had left the Jews quite bitter towards the Romans, and so they're quite suspicious now even of this new Roman overlord, Festus. So Festus gets there, he's trying to create some sense of cooperation with the Jewish leaders, um, but he's faced with a challenge, and that is these Jewish leaders have now created the habit of being able to manipulate these Roman governors to get what they want, 
case in point, they were able to manipulate Pontius Pilate to execute Jesus, though he was an innocent man. Though they failed to get Felix to execute Paul, they had gotten Paul um, imprisoned and therefore out of circulation. Now, included in Felix's problem is the fact that these Jews are really a wild and radical bunch of people. Uh, 200 years earlier, in the time of the Maccabees, the Jews had rioted and then successfully ousted the Greeks. In more recent times, the times that we find ourselves in now, there was this growth of an ultra-nationalistic zealot group uh, that were very anti-Roman. And just within a few more years, at, at, we're at about year 59 right now, but by year 66, there's an organized riot begun with these zealots, which actually would finally erupt in this um, all-out riot against Rome and then result in Jerusalem's complete destruction. So like, like his predecessors, Festus is facing the dilemma of trying to maintain control by being firm, but he doesn't want to spark a, a revolt, which, which is what actually ends up in time. So right away, these Jewish leaders make this request for a change of venue in dealing with Paul. They want Paul brought up from Caesarea back to Jerusalem. And we're told in verse 3 that the reason they're making this request for change of venue is they don't expect him to ever make it there. They're going to murder him along the way. It's just ironic, and you have to pause and think about the irony of that here we have these religious leaders, the head of the, the most enlightened nation in the history of the human race, and they're plotting murder. You would think at least uh, being Jewish and mindful of the Decalogue, thou shalt not murder, that they would be, um, they'd be a, a little bit resistant to that. Or just the fact that the Jewish, um, the, the Jewish law was very, their criminal law was very protective of person who was being charged with a capital offense. There were vigorous safeguards put in place to make sure that the person accused of a capital offense had every possible uh, explanation, every possible recourse given to them. And yet here they are deliberately ignoring any due process of the law. They want to kill him. And they, of course, their rationale was that he is guilty of a crime deserving capital punishment but we don't have him convicted of any crime, so these un, um, uncommon situations call for uncommon measures. So here's Israel's judges plotting murder. So they ask for this change of venue. Festus, of course, he doesn't, ex doesn't uh, accede to this particular request because he's, he's not planning to stay in Jerusalem. He's on his way back down to Caesarea, and so he tells them if they want to bring a deputation down with him um, to Caesarea, he'll reopen the case against Paul. Verse 6, after he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day, there's that lack of procrastination, the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews nor against the temple nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. So this whole case against Paul is being opened fresh 
but it doesn't seem like there's any new information um, being brought against him. So Festus, you know, is, takes his, his seat as the judge. They restate their charges. Um, they're bringing many serious charges, we are told, and they're hoping that these will be deadly charges. At least there's deadly intention here. Um, probably all that they're doing is reiterating the same charges that Tertullus, the Roman lawyer that we talked about last week, had brought before them because they don't produce any new evidence. They don't produce any uh, witnesses. In fact, the only witnesses to the charge of desecrating the temple never did come forward. So we don't know exactly what the charges are, but we can infer from the nature of Paul's response what these charges might have been because Paul issues this threefold denial. So first charge had to do with general um, breaking of the law, uh, and in particular with, secondly, the violating of the sanctity of the temple. As for this first charge, um, Luke tells us over and over again that Paul punctiliously observes Jewish customs and Jewish law when he's in and among Jewish people. Whatever happens outside of Palestine really is outside of the control and the purveyance of the Sanhedrin anyway. It's, it's, it, their writ only goes as far as, as Judea. Um, their second charge, the particular charge of profaning the temple, um, remember he's there worshiping with four Jewish brothers. There's no Gentile in the mix. And it is the Asian Jews from Ephesus who generate this riot. But like I said, there were no witnesses then. There were no witnesses at the last trial, and there certainly are no witnesses to come forward now. So there's no evidence and there's no witness that he had profaned the temples. And since there's no evidence, a prima facie case cannot be made out against him. Uh, and since there's only these unsubstantiated charges, they don't have a prima facie case. And so Festus is not going to release Paul to the Jews on those two. The third charge, however, is something more serious. This charge of acting against the emperor's interests is a very serious charge. It's probably a repetition of what Paul had been charged um, in Thessalonica and also remember Tertullius's charge that, that, wherever, that Paul is a pest, a pestilence, that wherever he goes, he stirs up disorder, he creates riots, he stirs up people. Now that's a pretty serious charge because the Romans were particularly interested in maintaining peace and order. But once again, his accusers have really overreached themselves because while this is a serious charge of creating disorder throughout the Roman world, it's decidedly outside of their jurisdiction. This is the imperial jurisdiction. This is not the jurisdiction of the Sanhedrin in Israel. Verse 9. I need a dun-dun-dun. Verse 9. But Festus wishing to do the Jews a favor. Again, that's not what you want the judge who's ruling over you to conclude. Wishing to do the Jews a favor said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and be tried on these charges before me? And Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. Uh, the Jews have, to the Jews I've done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. 
If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there's nothing to their charges against me and no one can give me up to them, I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Now before the Sanhedrin's charges, um, or excuse me, between the Sanhedrin's charges and Paul's response, um, they made a lot of vague but grievous charge against him. And Festus wants to do something to reinforce this goodwill. But he, he needs to do it in such a way that doesn't violate Roman justice. After all, the man being accused is a Roman citizen, not just simply a Jew. So if this can be handled in such a way that it doesn't violate Roman justice, um, they'll, he'll certainly want to concede to that. And as far as the Romans are concerned, it doesn't really matter to them whether Paul is tried in Jerusalem or in Caesarea. It makes no difference. And Festus reaffirms, if we go to Jerusalem for this change of venue, you'll be tried by me. You'll sit before me, a Roman a procurator, a Roman judge. You won't be held over, over to the, uh, the Sanhedrin. So Festus himself will be the judge. Well, that seems like a reasonable compromise. It seems like a reasonable enough proposal, and the more so because, you know, the one specific crime that they've charged Paul with is, is uh, desecrating the temple, and if there's going to be any witnesses, they're going to be found in Jerusalem. So it makes sense that if that's the only specific charge, he should go to Jerusalem and he could, he could face the charges there. Change of venue does not seem unreasonable to Festus, but it does seem quite unreasonable to Paul because to go back to Jerusalem is to place himself into jeopardy once more. Um, if Festus is going to make this one concession to the Sanhedrin, then what's to keep him from making the next concession? Now, Felix... Paul points out, was a very uh, experienced administrator. He understood the Jews, and he knew something about Christianity, and he was not about to have the wool pulled all over his eyes. But Festus is very inexperienced, and Paul is not confident that uh, he will get justice there. He's not assured, assured that uh, Festus isn't going to do something that then circumvents the law and hands them over to them. If there's, if there's no substance to their charge, he does not want to be placed in their power. So he's, he's uh, standing in the court that he ought to be standing. If he's standing in a Roman tribunal with Festus, the representative of the Caesar. However, at this point, Paul is losing confidence in this tribunal um, losing confidence in the impartiality of this subordinate tribunal, and so he appeals to the supreme tribunal. He says, I want to take myself out of this lesser court, and I appeal to Caesar. That is his right, as any Roman citizen has, to, to ultimately appeal all the way up to Caesar. Curiously, the Caesar to which Paul is appealing is Nero. And Nero is known as the wild beast of the first century. Nero um, was uh, one of the most wicked, bloodiest, ruthless, most corrupt emperors Rome ever had, but not during his first five years. Nero comes to power in 54, and he 
uh, from, for the first five years from 54 to 59, Nero is being tutored by the philosopher Seneca, the Stoic philosopher Seneca. Uh, Seneca's well known, his works are still studied today. And Seneca was instructing Nero how to rule well, how to judge fairly. And during those first five years, Nero was actually a very good emperor. Um, his time of corruption had not yet been manifested. So it was actually a very intelligent thing that Paul did appealing to Nero. What he doesn't know is by the time he gets there, Nero will be waiting for him with a sword. Festus hears Paul's words asking to be up to uh, move up in the appellate process to Nero, and he must have felt a great sense of relief because he's torn between wanting to make these compromises to ingratiate himself to the Jews and still his responsibility to this Roman citizen. And so verse 12, he confers with his council. His council would have been some of the higher ups in his administration, but also a whole flock of young men who attended him in order to learn and gain some experience on how provincial government was, was done. So they confer and they readily um, uh, agree that Paul's case should be referred to Rome. Curiously, because legally they have no other recourse. Once a Roman citizen appeals to Caesar, um, they would have no other option. So Paul has now appealed to, to Caesar. Um, Paul probably made this request, first of all, because of concern for his own safety, but there are other considerations to be considered, too, and that would be that he was, uh, he was concerned for the recognition of the other Gentile churches throughout the Roman Empire, that they not be seen as, as renegades and troublemakers. And I think, too, based on the promise when Jesus stood beside Paul and said, you'll speak about me in Rome, that Paul is... Uh, moved by this incomparable opportunity to, uh, to preach the gospel in the seat of imperial power. So once again, as we look at all of this, we see we are reminded of God's concurrent providence. You know, remember a few weeks ago I told you about providence. It's important that we uh, remember that God is providential. We talked about the three aspects of God's providence, His, his preservation having to do with he maintains his creation, the universe. It's, it's in God's hands to, to maintain the universe that he has created. We talked about the second aspect of providence being governance, that uh, God rules and he works all things according to his own purposes, basically that what God wants, God gets. And then thirdly, we talked about concurrent providence, and you recognize the word concurrent from working with or working together in this case, we talk about that he's working together with second causes, that he works together through other people and other instances to accomplish his, his uh, own purposes. Uh, we, God is not deterred by the enemy's actions to frustrate his plan. God is providentially ruling over his creation. God is not deterred by the action of of, of a corrupt judicial system, either by deceitful lawyers or by corrupt judges. God will use these men to accomplish his own purposes and his own plans. So in, uh, in the fact that Jen Pisaki is retiring in what, like this week? Is it? 
Okay, you guys don't even know who Jen Psaki is, do you? All right, well, to, to circle back around, I like to circle back around to my plea deal. Hey, look, I don't hate lawyers. I don't know why you guys, I didn't, I didn't mean to imply I hate lawyers. I just meant to say I don't trust, I don't trust courtroom lawyers to always speak the truth, okay? And my legal counsel asked me to remind you that the problem is not with the lawyers, it's with the judges. And we certainly see that in the accounts today. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the history that we are learning, which points to the fact that as history unfolds, it always unfolds into your hands, that you are providentially in control of the history of men, the history of redemption. And while men are resisting you, you continue to work out your plans of grace and love, of forgiveness and redemption. And that is the thing that we celebrate in the text before us today. Lord, all of these texts, whether they are Christological or whether they are instructive and theological or whether they're just history, all of these texts are meant to edify the church and to build us up, uh, not just in our knowledge of the history of the church, but also our confidence in, in you. And so I pray that you'll instruct us. I pray that you'll edify us and grow us in Jesus' name. Amen.